Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall. Again, Leslie will be back with us in just about a half hour, uh, returning from her television appearance. In the meantime, I am uh, excited to be joined by a good friend of the show, George Zornick, who is the Washington editor for The Nation. You've heard him on the show with both Leslie and myself before. And uh, we're actually interviewing him today regarding a newer piece he has written for The Nation, which you can find on their website, thenation.com. Its title is Elizabeth Warren Takes on the Gig Economy. George, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So, um, you know, looking into the piece, before we get into uh, your piece, um, you know, a new, a new uh, Pew Research survey finds that just under 90% of American uh, adults we're not familiar with the term gig economy, so before we jump into your piece, I wanted to have you explain what the term gig economy uh, refers to for those of our listeners who are not familiar with it or might not fully understand it. You know, it, it describes a pretty, unfortunately, broad trend, um, in the new, especially in the new post-2008 economy, where a lot of workers are becoming part-time. It's, it's also called sometimes the 1099 economy for that tax form that you file if you're not a full-time worker. So, you know, a lot of workers, um, in fact, one in three workers are now considered freelancers, which means they work on a contract basis. Um, sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't work 40 hours a week, but they're classified as independent workers, which allows the employer to um, play with their hours as they see it, to not give them health insurance or retirement benefits, um, and, and to keep wages comparatively low. So, um, oh, that's most popularly known. I mean, it's actually a pretty broad trend in almost all sectors of the economy from, you know, technology to retail or whatever else. But a, a lot of the public face of it recently has been um, things like Uber or Airbnb, where people are um, either as their primary or secondary employment, like having this part-time kind of gig work, driving a car or, or renting out their spare bedroom. And the problem for a lot of these workers is that, obviously, in a lot of these situations, if you are a 1099 employee, you're, you're most likely not getting uh, health insurance through your employer, and you're also uh, not getting any sort of retirement benefits or pension or a lot of the other benefits that you would get if you were a, a normal um, full-time employee. And additionally, you actually, I've, I've been a 1099 employee, and then I've been a normal employee for, uh, filing a W-2, 
and I usually, anyway, I didn't hear a lot of other people in this situation pay more taxes uh, at the end of the year as a 1099 employee that your employer would usually pick up. So it really puts a lot of Americans in a tough place, not only in the future as far as looking down the road at retirement, but also as they're living their lives and working these jobs, they uh, have a, a, usually a harder time um, making ends meet uh, due to the situation that they're put in uh, with this part-time work. Even if you like, like you said, that doesn't necessarily mean in a lot of cases that they're not working 40 hours a week. They're just not getting the benefits that a typical uh, full-time uh, worker would get in the past. Yeah, you're right, and, and there's a downward cyclical effect where, um, you know, a lot of employers who are doing this are, are driving wages and benefits down, um, and as the economy gets rougher, also, it's something that people turn to when they can't make money. I mean, you see people heading back into the workforce, but they may not be taking that, you know, salaried $40,000-a-year job that they had before. With health insurance, they may be driving an Uber, um, which is has no benefits, is, is sort of the whole model of Uber to rely or reliant on, on low wages for the drivers, and it's very volatile. Your car breaks down or, or you get in an accident or, you know, any, any number of things. There just aren't enough people going out on a Friday night. I mean, it, it makes your wages very volatile. So it, it is. It, it causes a lot of problems for a lot of people. It is in some ways a solution, and I think um, as well, you know, I think in some of the speech that Elizabeth Warren talked about, she said, look, particularly as it comes to, like, Uber and Airbnb, let's not say that these are completely terrible things. I mean, I think a lot of people who have used either say it, it's cheap and easy and, you know, it's a good way to make money inside. And she, and she kind of compared it to what's happening now to sort of the Industrial Revolution. When, when the technology and the factories came online, it totally disrupted everyone's economic way of life, and it immiserated in the short term a lot of people who were used to, you know, the farm lifestyle and who didn't yet have the protections of, you know, a union and a 40-hour work week and health standards that came later. So she's saying, you know, we didn't just close the factories and we shouldn't just get rid of Uber and Airbnb, but there are certain things we can do to kind of make this new economy work more workers and just kind of rethink that basic bargain between workers and their employers. And as you highlight in your piece, uh, Senator Warren said in her speech last week, quote, long before anyone ever wrote an article about the gig economy, corporations had discovered the higher profits they could wring out of an on-demand workforce made up of independent contractors. Um, Also, she said the gig economy has become, as you just alluded to, a stopgap for some workers who can't make ends meet in a weak labor market. Quote, for many, the gig economy is simply the next step in a losing effort to build some economic security in a world where all the benefits are floating up to the top 10%. Um, she sees it more of a, a symptom than a cause, really, I, I think, as as kind of you had alluded to. So the way that she attacks this um, is with three basic principles that uh, you write about in your piece, George. Um, first, why don't you tell us about her idea to improve the safety net for workers, which is something that we just highlighted as a problem for a lot of these workers who face this situation. Yeah, I mean, so left, I should say at, at first that left unspoken in her speech, but something she's talked about a lot before is expanding Social Security, you know, making the benefits even greater than they are now. But she added an extra wrinkle in her speech, which she said, you know, we should make it easy and mandatory for workers, even if they're independent, to pay a payroll tax that goes into Social Security. You, you can technically do that now if you're a 1099 worker, as you know, but the employer doesn't mandate it because you don't have a, a regular paycheck. And a lot of workers either can't figure it out or opt not to pay into Social Security. And that can be a real problem because 
Uh, your benefits when you do retire are based on what you paid into the system. So if you went for 10 years and some of your highest earning years not paying into Social Security, you're going to have low benefits. It can also hurt you if you happen to get hurt and Social Security disability insurance, you know, that can come up very quickly. And if you haven't been paying into the system, you may not get those benefits. But she said, you know, it should be super easy the way that payrolls are all done on computers to just automatically no matter if you're 1099 or not, take payroll taxes out and, and put them into Social Security. People have a better assurance that if they get hurt or when they retire, those benefits are there. And on top of that, she, she reiterated a claim, which she and many other Democrats made before, that there should be mandatory paid leave um, for all workers, even if they're not salaried. And that's obviously a problem. I mean, if you're an Uber driver and you get sick or have a kid, it, it's straight up a choice between and earning money or not. I mean, there's no there's no one to take vacation from. No, so exactly. She alluded, she alluded to a lot of those mandatory paid paid uh, leave plans that people have talked about, and she didn't, and it would be a theme throughout the She didn't really say, you know, this is the X, Y, Z of how you get to, to paid leave. It should be funded by the government or this or that. She just kind of laid out, this is a principle. Let's start heading towards it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's important to note in this speech, George, that these are some principles that she's laying out. But as as you write, it's important. You have to start, you know, especially when you have a big progressive voice uh, in the Democratic Party. It's good to have these ideas laid out and then debate them and add to them. When we get back from the break, uh, George, I want to talk to you about which is potentially Warren's biggest proposal uh, in all of this, uh, which we'll talk about about after the break. Uh, if you'd like to join in with George Zornick, who is the Washington editor for The Nation, or myself, Mark Romaldi, you can do so at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Prior to joining The Nation, George was senior reporter and blogger for thinkprogress.org. He worked as a researcher for Michael Moore's famous documentary, Sicko, and as an associate producer on The Media Project on the Independent Film Channel. You can follow him on Twitter at GZornick. That's G-Z-O-R-N-I-C-K. And you can find his work at thenation.com. We will be right back with George after this quick commercial break. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi filling in for Leslie Marshall just for one more segment. Segment? I don't know what a segment is, George. Maybe you could report on that for numbs. <laughs> uh, so we are again talking about George Zornick's piece for thenation.com entitled Elizabeth Warren Takes on the Gig Economy. And before the break, I had alluded to what George, you uh, had written, was potentially Warren's biggest proposal in all of this, uh, which is her idea regarding portable retirement plans for all workers. What is that about? Yeah, I mean, Social Security is is great, um, but even if it's expanded, it, it, it may not be able to provide for everyone's retirement needs. And certainly most people on the side usually have some kind of 401K or, or pension plan even, though those are obviously disappearing. Um, but what Warren said is that, that these gig workers, these part-time workers, should have an easy way to save for retirement because they don't have an employer that's giving them a 401K and, and matching the entries into it. So. Her big idea, and it was kind of the big new idea in this whole speech, if there's one takeaway, um, is, is for uh, portable retirement benefits, sort of a system that's created 
either by the government or by a union or even a, a corporation where you have a retirement account that just automatically goes with you wherever you happen to be employed for pretty much your entire working life. Um, and you can switch it, obviously, but it makes it a lot easier to save for retirement, which is crucial for a lot of these part-time workers. I mean, obviously, Uber did not offer a, a 401k plan. I think it makes a lot of sense, too, because it also, as one of the things we saw when um, the Affordable Care Act passed, people didn't feel like they had to stay at jobs they didn't want to be in. It gave them more mobility to go to um, jobs that they wanted to strive for, but maybe felt it locked in by the fact that if they left, they couldn't get health insurance. I think you could see some benefits of people not worrying about staying at a job that they don't want to be in anymore if they knew that they could um, move their retirement benefits. That's, I think, another benefit you could see from that. But also, um, you know, you have it's good for the economy when workers have that type of security for the future, because otherwise it ends up being a drag, you know, by the fact that they they want to retire, which either they can't retire and then it prohibits other people from joining the workforce, which we see as a problem with a lot of youth. Um, right now, or the fact that they just can't, you know, by the time they do retire, they don't have enough money and they rely on the government uh, for more benefits, which is something conservatives rail against. So I think it could really have um, widespread benefits. I also like the idea, George, which you mentioned, which is the fact that you know, maybe it could be done by the government or a union or um, a private organization like a corporation. I think that leaves it open to, you know, potentially having different industries treated differently. Um, what has the response been like to this idea and to, and to Warren's uh, speech on, on these ideas? I know you had uh, mentioned towards the end of the article um, some people in the Democratic Party or some uh, progressives who had given their thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people who, who have looked at this closely were happy to see her take a lead on it, though I think they they wanted a lot more detail than she gave, which is fair, though, in some respects. Um, I think, like we were saying earlier, she's not you know out here trying to lay out every a roadmap, a detailed roadmap, so this is exactly every policy thing we do to get there. She's kind of just kicking off the conversation because it's something that a lot of people don't talk about in outlining broad goals. Um, what One thing I think that she gave uh, light treatment to, perhaps too light treatment to, was the regulatory issues around the gig economy, and particularly things like Uber and Airbnb. Um, you know, it doesn't really make sense that at this point, as big as these companies are, they're able to avoid a lot of the regulations that we've spent decades putting in place to, to keep people safe and, and keep them from being discriminated against. So, I mean, if, if you go on and want to rent, you know, a Marriott hotel room, Marriott has to provide you know, a room that's up to fire code and that has been inspected. They're not allowed to discriminate based on your age or race or gender um, and all these things. But now the way it works, I mean, I know as many people who use Airbnb as, as Orbit. So does it make sense that if you book a hotel room on Marriott.com, all those regulations apply? But if you book it on Airbnb.com, then none of them apply. Um, the, the regulatory structure hasn't really caught up to the new sort of gig economy, particularly when it comes to, to Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and Airbnb and things like that. So that's something she didn't really touch on. She was she was more focused, and it's understandable, she was more focused on the worker side of things, you know, the effect on wages and the economy. But there's a whole regulatory question here, too, that at some point is going to have to be addressed. 
She also uh, talked about um, the issue of overclassification of workers, and and that's something that I know has been a big problem in this country, especially after the market crash in two thousand eight. Um, what's her? What was her? Uh, you know, her comments regarding that, and basically clarifying those laws around part time work. Yeah, I mean, she she said that the laws need to be simplified, which is true. Because although there's really no doubt at this point that employers are way um, overclassifying what are clearly full-time workers as independent workers, so they're, they're taking workers who are working 40 hours a week and have a dedicated workspace and, you know, can't work for other competitors, those are full-time employees and they're saying they're not. But so on that side, it's a matter of enforcement. But also you, you have to make the law simple for companies to know because, of course, there really is such a thing as a part-time worker. I mean, if you were going to have someone, you know, come into the radio station there and, and rewire your soundboard and it's going to take a month, I mean, that's not – you don't, you're not going to put them on salary, you know. So it, 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 there, there are ambiguous questions for employers about how do I know when I have hired a full-time or a part-time worker. And without giving a whole ton of guidance, she said we should make the laws basically as simple as possible and then step up the enforcement to make sure that people are following them. So a lot of these employers are obviously doing this so that they don't have to give benefits or deal with, like, I think it was it was Office Depot or Office Max who started doing this after the Affordable Care Act passed so that they could keep their employees under 40 hours. I mean, we've seen corporations do this, you know, over and over again. And now looking at a situation like, like Uber or, or Airbnb or Lyft, like, like you were talking about, um, these workers are facing new challenges. So it's something that obviously is really affecting a good chunk of people in this country. But like you alluded to at the beginning of your piece, George, there's really not been a lot of talk about it in the presidential campaign. I know initially, I think it was last summer, which you had alluded to, um, Hillary Clinton uh, said that companies like Uber and Airbnb created, I think it was, quote, exciting opportunities, but also raised hard questions about workplace protections and what a good job will look like in the future. Um, She got attacked by Republicans right after. And um, really beyond that, there hasn't been a whole lot of talk about it. So is this just too new for Americans and too new for Americans to kind of understand and too new for, um, you know, our leaders in this presidential election to really address? Is this something that we might see addressed on more of a local level? I know Warren is a big leader in the, the Senate, so hopefully this will raise awareness to the issue. But where do you see the issue going forward? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the, the political terrain is pretty uncharted, like you say. I think a lot of people just may not be familiar I think I saw a stat that only 15% of Americans have ever used uh, Uber or another ride-sharing service. I, I suspect it's much higher for Airbnb. But, again, it's a broad, I'm sure people know someone who is an independent worker and who may even be misclassified as part-time. But it's, it's been a tough thing for Democrats to talk about, and I think it's good that Warren is, is kind of setting out um, staking a claim to it because Democrats have tried to talk about it before. And they immediately get hit with what feels like a, a very, to them, a very potent Republican counterattack, which is, wait a minute. First of all, everyone loves Uber and Airbnb, particularly young people. Um, this is great. This is, you know, the definition of small business. It, it's a small business of one where you can, um, you know, create your own little little gig, driving an Uber, renting out your room. Don't get the government involved in this. You know, they see the lack of regulation as explicitly a good thing. It's a way for people to operate outside the supposedly oppressive 
um, regulatory structure of, of federal and local government. So Republicans love to talk about that. I mean, Marco Rubio um, made his campaign rest in peace, but it was it, a big part of it was going to be sort of talking about how he's the Uber candidate. He's all about innovation and, you know, disrupting the economy and, and explicitly avoiding sort of the, the overregulation that he believes he sees in the market. So that kind of set Democrats back a little bit, and I think they're they're trying to figure out how do we talk about this. And and I I think or I hope that Warren is starting to figure out a way to do it effectively. And especially when you look at, like you said, there's a lot of young people who like this service, but a lot of young people are generally more progressive. If you look at you know the amount of people that are supporting Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary, so I think it's an interesting issue where you know maybe maybe the people who use it might be juxtaposed against trying to have more regulation around it. But then again, a lot of these people who are actually working for these services, we've seen, um, I believe it was in the state of Washington, um, drivers uh, trying to form a union. So you're going to have issues in this this gig economy that people are going to kind of not really understand where to go because of the uncharted territory. So I, I really agree with you, George, that it's important for policymakers to start educating Americans about it now because it affects um, so many people. So I was uh, happy to see you uh, write about this piece. Um, George, thank you again for joining us. If you want to follow George's work, you can check his uh, pieces out at thenation.com. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at G Zornick. That's G-Z-O-R-N-I-C-K. This has been Mark Romaldi in for Leslie Marshall. To women who hoped to evade the ticking clock of time, Dr. Frederick Brandt was the most potent drug dealer in the world. And the dealer got high on his own supply. From Imperative Entertainment and the team behind Broken Hearts comes a new series that will challenge everything you know about fame, fortune, and the fear of growing old. I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox.